had a request before we get going too far tonight. I'm just going to ask if someone at your table would volunteer. We're just going to take a few moments to pray uh, for those in the panhandle tonight who are facing uh, the wildfires. We've got firefighters out there working. We've got people in danger's way. So uh, if you would, just someone at your table, if you'd be willing to pray aloud and, and others join in, we will, we will pray for a few minutes for, uh, um, for God's mercy and containing the fire and preserving life and livelihood there in the panhandle, and then we will, we will go through. Yes, David. Y'all will? Okay. Has y'all already gotten the... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, someone earlier said y'all hadn't gotten the for sure call yet, but y'all were expecting one, so. All right. So let's pray, and then I will, I will, I will pray us into uh, our time in the Word tonight. Father, we praise you that you, uh, um, though to our hands fires rage out of control, those fires have not put any heat on your throne and on your security there. Lord, we praise you that um, there are uh, brothers and sisters in you, there are men and women, boys and girls who don't know you, all of whom are facing uh, danger, threat of uh, loss of home, loss of livelihood, um, uh, and even, uh, Lord, should a danger not be removed, loss of life. And um, God, there are those who live there. There are fire men and women who are uh, laying their lives on the line to go out there. And Lord, n- not one of them is lost on you. You love them. You see them. And so we just ask from here that you would move in your mercy and in your might uh, to preserve their lives and their livelihoods that you would do it in such a way that those who know you would clearly um, rejoice and give honor you, and those who don't know you, it would just be apparent that only you could have preserved them. Father, would you grant to the uh, fire crews, the engineers that are on the ground and in the air, just wisdom and discernment to know how to um, interact and seek to counter the fires? And Jesus, just as the disciples marveled that you are the one whom the winds and the waves uh, obey, you are also the one whom the winds and the flames obey. So we just ask that you would bring uh, whatever needs to come to put an end to these fires, that you would um, preserve life. Lord, we ask this from our vantage point as uh, humans, and we entrust it to you. Bless our time now. Father, we um, just say thank you for allowing us to be here. 
Jesus, it's to you we look, and in your name I pray. Amen. All right. We're going to keep chugging through tonight, and let me give you, do a couple reminders, and and then uh, we will work through, um, work through, I think we should be able to, to make it through the basic arguments for the different rapture positions. Let me, let me just say this, though, on the outset. Uh, if, if you missed last week, it'd be worth going back and listening. Last week was more just kind of abroad. Here's the various views, and, and here's kind of some history behind why some views are, are more prominent uh, for many of us than, than other views. Um, Tonight we'll get more into how do these different views interpret different scriptures and, and, and look, look there, what are potential strengths and weakness of each view. But as I do that tonight, as we go into some of the arguments, let me just make clear and acknowledge that we are at a point, uh, especially in uh, West, the Western world, um, we have lived in enough time of peace that, that our, the ability of theologians and pastors to write and write, and write, and write, and write, and write some more with regard to all different areas of theology means that we are living in a time where any one of these views, I could present to you something, and you go, well, that's not how I heard someone advocate. Well, you're right, because there's a million different views and arguments for each one of these views. What I have tried to do tonight is to just present the most basic cases for each um, and I'll give you an example. There's a, a passage that uh, many would use in one of the positions that I, I was talking with a, a seminary professor and said, I just don't, I don't see how you can justify that position with this verse, to which they said, well, not all who hold that position think that that verse justifies that. So the whole point is there is a lot of diversity in how stuff comes together and, uh, you know, my, I, there's no possible way I can do justice to a fraction of it on a single Wednesday night. And um, as much as uh, we may or may not be enjoying all of this, I'm not going to take 52 Wednesdays of a year to unpack all the different views. Uh, it's just not. Um, <clears throat> but I can point you to books that will allow you to do that. So, uh, also, uh, I... Uh, I shared with you last week how, how, do, how, how when you look at church history, uh, the dominant view of the early church would have been a post-tribulation rapture uh, from a premillennial perspective. The majority view throughout much of Western church history uh, from the 400s till beginning in the Reformation and moving to the 1800s was more of a post-millennial, amillennial perspective. Um, and certainly not pre-tribulation with regard to a rapture. How, how do we come to a point where since the mid-1800s, if you grew up in Baptist, Bible, Pentecostal church traditions, the dominant view is that of a pre-tribulation rapture? And we talked through some of that last week, and, and I, I picked up a book, and it added more to that. And this, a lot of these, uh, some of these, the pastors and churches, I know. Uh, the TV and radio broadcasts, I don't know, but I have a feeling many of you will know. Um, so let's back up for a second here. So when we think about dispensationalism, uh, it was taught in what is now Western Seminary, Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, Denver Seminary. Of course, DTS was founded uh, for it, Movie Bible Institute, Biola University, uh, all of these places. Not only that... But when you get to the latter half of the 20th century, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse 
W.A. Criswell, Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll. Those are probably from 1950 to 2000 the most predominant television preachers that are not whack jobs on television. And by the way, they're, they're good, good preachers. There's no, uh, no shot there. Um, popular radio ministries. Charles Fuller, who founded Fuller Theological Seminary. The Old Fashioned Gospel Hour. Uh, Wilbur, uh, Wilbur Smith and... Um, sorry. Uh, M.R. Uh, DeHaan and Richard DeHaan on the Radio Bible Class. Theodore Epp and Warren Wearsby on Back to the Bible. J. Vernon McGee's Through the Bible. Jerry Falwell's Old Time Gospel Hour and Chuck Swindoll's Insight for Living. In addition, uh, Young Life was founded from a dispensational perspective. Um, and in addition to that, dispensationalists have been all throughout different. Not only this, uh, you have uh, maybe the biggest voice of them all, Bill, Billy Graham. So my whole point is, how did we get to where that's really the dominant view and you come in and, and, uh, and you get the, well, that, that's, that's how you get there because that theological perspective was very heavy in the circles that most of us come from. Now, having said that, let me acknowledge as I go through some of the things tonight, I don't come from that point of view as maybe some of you, and that's strictly generational. Um, by the time I was, I mean, I think I looked up, the last Left Behind book came out in maybe 2007, but I mean, that's the last, like book number 13. Left Behind was at its heyday in the late 90s. I was in fifth grade playing with Pokemon and flag football and Super Mario and uh, playing baseball. Like, I was not, you know. So my point is, I, I from a different generation, I did not grow up in a church uh, where there was a lot of dispensationalism, though it was pre-millennial and pre-trib in its end time views. I did not grow up around, um, I mean, I, I know Adrian Rogers not because of how many sermons of hers I've, his, I've ever heard. I haven't ever heard one of his sermons. I know Adrian Rogers because he and Papa are good friends, and I just know Papa's stories about Adrian, who probably I should be calling Dr. Rogers, uh, not. Um, so understand, you may go, oh, well, Pastor, you didn't bring up that. Well, I also didn't. There may be stuff you're thinking of that I wouldn't think to think of in that order because I didn't grow up in a time where that's how it was presented to me or how it was even taught when I went through seminary. Again, every generation has its favorite theological debate, and my generation's favorite theological debate was not in times. We looked at the previous debates and said, no, nah, we're not going to debate that. We'll pick something different for our, our pointless conversations in the dorm room at midnight. No. So, all right. So here we go. If I've got our, my slides, here we go. If you'll remember, here's the three basic timelines for the different views of when the rapture happens. And by rapture, let's just remind all of us, by rapture what we mean is when Jesus comes back for the church. That's, that's what we mean. And the question is, does Jesus come back for the church as it currently exists prior to the seven years of tribulation sometime in the middle or of the tribulation or before his wrath is poured out? Or is the coming for the church synonymous with the second coming when he returns and comes out of heaven? These are the different views. So pre, mid, and post would be there. Uh, when it comes to, and I think this is on your, your uh, reference note. Oh, good. There is a clock back there. I don't have to worry about keeping track of my phone. 
Um, on your notes, let me just read the definition. And the definitions I put on your reference notes, I took out of, uh, I believe, the Holman Bible Dictionary. So it's not mine. I took it out. I believe I put a reference note on there for you. Um, but here's what, here's what you'll find. Pre-tribulation is, is, the, is uh, the belief that Christ will be revealed at the outset of the tribulation period of seven years. The dead in Christ will rise. Every true believer will be caught up with the Lord in the air. A period of seven years of the outpouring of the wrath of God upon earth, which will conclude with the return of Christ to establish his millennial kingdom, will follow. Hence, Christ comes for the church prior to the tribulation and prior to the millennium uh, to establish his kingdom. And then I think I drew you a little attempted to with word and dashes, uh, kind of a, a timeline there. For that, what the pre-trib view, the pre-trib is, is, is going to be the view many are familiar with. It's where prior to the tribulation, there is a, uh, essentially a secret coming of Christ where he uh, will, will take the church, rapture the church out of this world. Um, the dead in Christ will uh, be, be raised. And this, uh, many in this camp would view um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. We'll look at that in a second as speaking to that, uh, that time. Um, let me just, as I'm thinking about this, let me give my other proviso. Just remind all of you, my goal is to educate, especially on this issue. Um, we're clear on what we're going to fight over, which is Jesus literally returns in a real body to usher in a real eternity. Wickedness is judged. Righteousness is rewarded. We will fight to the grave on that because that is undeniably true in Scripture. When exactly Jesus returns for the church, uh, some will feel more strongly than others, but in, in reality, that's not a primary thing we're going to get all hacked off at each other over. The point is he does because he's faithful and true, and we can have a good time talking about it. My granddad, it would be a pre-trib, uh, one of his closest friends, church members, and one of the... Um, uh, professors and Bible scholars he probably had more respect for in the world than any other was a post-trib. And they liked to rib each other about it all day long. And uh, um, I believe Dr. Bell is now with the Lord. So Dr. Bell has a better idea now. I don't know if he knows now or not, but he has a better idea than either my granddad or me do. Um, so just to say, I lean just to be clear, I lean towards a post-trib perspective, but I say that so you don't feel, I'm not trying to convince anyone in here that I'm right, because I'm also not so sure that I might not convince myself out of where I'm at with further study. So that's where it gets, uh, there's, there's pros and cons for all of these views. My aim is not to change your opinion, convince you, unless you don't think Jesus is coming, and then we're going to have a conversation. We'll convince you of that. So uh, here's the ice idea pre-trib. The tribulation, that seven years, is a time of God pouring out wrath on earth. Uh, we know as Christians we have been spared the wrath of God, so we must be removed. That's one way of coming of it. In Revelation 3.10, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus made a promise. He said, if, if you overcome, I will, I will keep you from the hour, meaning I will remove you from the hour of, uh, of tribulation coming. And in that passage, it's hard to see the hour of tribulation or the hour of testing that is coming. It's hard to understand that, not in the case of, a, of the seven-year tribulation. Um, uh, 
a pre-trib view would, would see, in fact, when I went, I went through after last Wednesday and I read, um, and, and in fairness, I, I Wikipedia'd it, and Wikipedia is useful for some things, not all, but some. It is useful for this. I read the plot summaries of all 13 Left Behind books. Because I've got too much to read, I don't have time to go read all 13. Um, but I read the plot summaries, and it was interesting. It makes this note in the Left Behind books, if you've read them all, when Jesus returns at the second coming with the raptured church, and he enters and begins the millennial kingdom, this would be the perspective of Tim LaHaye, those believers who made it through the seven years of tribulation, they don't get a glorified body in the millennium. So in the Left Behind books, Raymond Still, so Bucky and some of the others who've died, they have a glorified body in the millennium, but Raymond Still, he slowly, 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 slowly ages till the end, and then he gets his glorified body. There would be that perspective in the pre-trib camp. Um, one of the big proponents, if you read, is this idea Jesus said, no one knows the date or time of his coming, and so a pre-tribulation rapture preserves that idea for believers, uh, the argument being, well, if Jesus can't come back for the church until after the Antichrist rises up in a peace agreement, and we know it's seven years, then you could kind of go, oh, hey, look, the peace agreement was signed today, seven years, this is when Jesus comes back. So to preserve that, uh, that any moment now Jesus could return, that necessitates a pre-trib uh, rapture. Um, now, what is important to understand with, with, with pre-trib and a lot of the other scriptures that would be pointed to, so many people today, even, even some of us in the room, we are likely a mixture of a variety of perspectives on the end times that we've heard, that we've read, that we've picked up, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but what, what we need to understand, and this was a very helpful thing as I went through and was studying this several months ago, because I, I, I picked up one guy's book, and he laid out, he, he made very clear in his book, it is absurd as a believer to think of anything other than a pre-tribulation rapture. Here's five reasons why. And at the core of his five reasons, in my opinion, was essentially that it, you could summarize it down to God wouldn't let his church suffer like that. That's a dangerous reason to fall back on. Have, do you know what most of our brothers and sisters presently are suffering like? They would gladly take a simple beheading. Uh, so, I was like, well, gosh, if this is the best argument, this is... So, I, talk, I, I, I did some further digging. I always... I always I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room, so I always do further digging, call people, talk to use professors... And what's helpful to understand is, historically, the primary case for a pre-trib rapture comes from, I mentioned this last week, dispensationalism. One of the key marks of dispensationalism is that there's these different dispensations in which the way in, in which the way that God relates and the level to which He reveals Himself to humanity are different. Salvation still by grace through faith in all of them, but the way in which God communicates, interacts, and holds humanity accountable is different in these different dispensations. And the idea is that in dispensationalism, that when the church was birthed post-Jesus' resurrection, and there's different forms of dispensationalism that'll give it different terms, but the idea is that that is a unique period, and remember, there is a separation between the Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and the um, multi-ethnic, multi-generational 
church people of God in the New Testament. And for God, there are things God has not finished doing with Israel. The seven years of tribulation is the time when God will finish purifying and bringing salvation. It's a, it, God's got to finish what he started with Israel. So in dispensationalism, in dispensationalism, in order for God to do that, it is a necessary consequence that the church must be removed beforehand. So there is a logic to it that then, from a broader perspective, you're going to read different passages of Scripture. So it's not necessary that you just picked up Scripture and you went, oh, this point, you've got something broader. Now I say that, not saying towards anyone in this room, I say that to say you and I are a mix of all sorts of different people who take different points and hold different parts and, and come down so that when it comes to a pre-trib rapture, We, we find different reasons that go in there. Obviously, uh, I think any believer would love for the pre-trib rapture position to be the one. Someone told me, Pastor, I think you're wrong. I said, that's great, and I hope you're right. I'm, I'm, I, I will happily, every one of you who thinks that there's a pre-trib rapture, when it happens, I will find you in the sky on our way to meet Jesus, and I will say, thank goodness you were right. But those are the basic, this is the basic idea. Seven years of tribulation is a time of God's wrath. Christians are spared God's wrath. Um, and so in, the, in this way then, so if you've got your Bibles, go with me to 1 Thessalonians. In this way, in a pre-tribulation rapture position, again, generally speaking, not everybody, generally speaking, when Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who do not have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. We will be seized up. That's the Greek word that Jerome would translate uh, into uh, rapio, which we translate rapture. That's where the word rapture comes from. It's not in the Greek, but from the Latin. And we will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So in a pre-trib understanding, generally speaking, not every pre-trib will claim this, but generally speaking, uh, we would read that passage as there comes a moment, we don't know when it's coming, that we as believers are going to hear this shout, hear this trumpet of God, we're going to see Jesus come, we're going to see the dead in Christ rise in glorified bodies, they'll be caught in the air, 1 Corinthians 15, in the blinking of an eye they'll be transformed, we'll get caught up, be transformed, and the Lord will take us back to heaven while the seven years of tribulation play out before the second coming. And then in addition, if you turn over a page, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if the question in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians was, well, what about those who've died? Are they, are they going to experience the resurrection? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they're dealing with, well, someone's told us the day of the Lord already happened. It already came. So Paul's writing to tell them, 
He says, don't be quickly shaken, verse 2, from your composure, be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or a letter, as if it is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself, above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him, now catch that, you know what restrains him, uh, neuter, so it could be a thing, what restrains him now, that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will say with his, slay with his breath. Now, Based on Revelation, based on Daniel, it's, it's pretty easy to understand uh, that Paul, by man of lawlessness, he's talking about the little horn of Daniel 7, the capital A Antichrist, uh, the beast, Satan's beast of, um, of Revelation 13. Paul says, you need to know that the day of the Lord hadn't happened yet. There's some things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. There's got to be a falling away. The man of lawlessness has got to rise up. He's got to proclaim himself God. And right now, there is something that restrains him, and he that is restraining him must first be removed. And so in many cases, in a pre-trib position, not in all, but in many, uh, maybe in, in the majority, the it restraining is the presence of the church, because the he who is restraining is the Holy Spirit. So this would be another reason the church has to be removed first for that level of wickedness to then thrive upon the earth because the church with the Holy Spirit filling her um, acts as a deterrent for that to happen. So that's how some basic... And then when you come into Revelation... When you come into Revelation, um, not again, not every there's going to be a variety, but maybe the 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 general simple you know level one pre-trib position right? that you know you're not super far down the rabbit hole yet. Um, you're going to have the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, all of which are aspects of God's of God's wrath interacting uh, upon humanity and most of the time going to be in a very chronological sequence. So those are, those are what's there. Here are some of the potential weaknesses. Uh, some will point out, well, not all the suffering in the tribulation is a result of God's wrath. In fact, when you read the description of it, much of it is due to people's wickedness in the work of Satan, not God's. And Christians are not spared suffering. The promise in Revelation 3.10 to the church in Philadelphia uh, can be understood uh, to mean when, when, when Jesus says, "If to those who overcome, I will keep you from the hour of testing that is soon to come upon the whole of the world. Uh, there's a variety of ways. And if you'll remember back when we preached through it, uh, we, I referenced this. There's a variety of ways. One, if we believe that Philadelphia was a literal church getting a literal letter, then Jesus has promised to those believers in the church of Philadelphia to keep them from the hour of testing likely doesn't mean the seven years of tribulation because those people lived 2,000 years ago and it hadn't happened yet. Not only that, but the verb to keep, there are two valid ways to translate it. One is to keep as in, I don't want you to go through it, so I take you out. The other equally valid linguistic way to understand to keep is I'm going to let you go through it, but I'm going to protect you through it so you won't suffer. That would, be, that would be the way 
that would be the way to keep you, to preserve you. And in that way, it would refer more to a a spiritual protection or perhaps some of the references to physical protection. Um, if you'll remember when we read through some of, some of the judgments God pours out on the world, it says that only those who have the mark of the beast experience it, meaning that there is a protection God puts on those Christians who are living in the time of the tribulation. Um, some would say, well, you know, in Revel- after Revelation 3, the term church does not appear, so there must be a rapture. Uh, i give you my own personal take. That, that's true. I think if that's what you're banking your argument on, it's weak. Because any, what do we, no one will argue, regardless of your rapture position, there's going to be some people who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. What does Bible say you call believers together? Church. Whether you use the term or not, the church is present. Now, maybe there's a necessary for the church to be pulled out prior. That, that's a different argument. Um, but there is a church in the tribulation just by virtue of the fact there are believers who come to faith in Christ in that time. First uh, Thessalonians 4.17, some will push back on that being Jesus returning for the rapture. as a secret return, saying, well, it's not really, because someone will go, well, if he returns then, but then he comes back another time, isn't there like a second and a third coming? And they'll say, well, no, because in the, in, in the rapture, his feet don't touch the earth. Well, technically, the passage doesn't, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be funny, you know? I, I always get nervous when there's chuckle. That's fine if you want to chuckle. Just know I'm not attacking anybody. I'm just giving you information. Um, fairness to the passage, the passage doesn't say anything about where Jesus' feet touch or don't touch. And in fact, if we're going to be honest to context, Paul's point in what he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not to address the rapture. It's to assure believers who are worried that their friends and family members who've died might not be resurrected because they died before Jesus' return. Paul's point is to comfort them, not to engage in an entire discussion of, of end times Chronology, and that's got away whenever we read that passage. Um, if in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the rapture of the church, and at the rapture of the church, the dead in Christ are risen and bodily resurrected, how does that impact our understanding of Revelation 20, which takes place after the second coming, and says that at that point in Jesus' return is when the first resurrection happens? Well, if there's already been a first resurrection, wouldn't that be the second resurrection? And then the, other re- the second resurrection would be the third resurrection. You go, well, it's first of a type. Okay, I'll give you that, first of a type. It's the first is a type of resurrection that's good. The second is a type of resurrection that's bad. But then we could come back to where does it ever say there's multiple times the first resurrection takes place? It doesn't, in fairness to Scripture. That's one of the challenges of the pre-trib position. Um, so, and we could go on. So, my point is, there's some strengths there that make sense of some stuff. There's some weaknesses there that don't make sense of some stuff. That's the pre-trib. Mid-trib. Here's what your, here's what your notes say. Notes that the, the apocalypse uh, divides the tribulation into two periods of three and one half years. We know that. Daniel even talks about at the halfway point, three and a half days into the 70th week. That's when the abomination of desolation takes place. Mid-tribulationists suggest that Christ will return for the church after the first half of the tribulation. 
The church, therefore, will have to experience the first 42 months of the tribulation period, but will be rescued from the most uh, debilitating portion of it. Um, now, by and large, when you come to a mid-tribulation view, the arguments for the, uh, the rapture are going to be very similar to the pre-trib view. The difference being that um, there's going to be a perspective of whatever happens in the first three and a half years is not, God's wrath is not poured out yet, so that's why the church is allowed to go through it. And then at the midway point, God pulls out. The, the other, uh, the other, I put it in this category, though, though I acknowledge that there's sufficient warrant for it to be different. It is a, it's probably the newest in terms of large-scale Uh, not appeal, publication, um, is what we call the pre-wrath position. The pre-wrath position states, not so much is it at the beginning, middle, or end, but that there will be the rapture of the church prior to that point in the tribulation when God's wrath is poured out. Uh, in its, in its uh, kind of original form that, it, 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 that hit the masses, there was the idea that the seal judgments are not God's wrath, but they reflect man, the Antichrist, Satan's wrath, until you get to the seventh seal, which is the start of the trumpet judgments, and that the trumpet and bowl judgments are God's wrath. So in this time of tribulation, the church will go through whatever period, which would be at least the first half of the tribulation, We'll go through that period where it's just the seals taking place, and then when it comes time for the trumpets and bowls, the church would be pulled out. Now, some will date that closer to the middle. Uh, some will go and say, well, in Daniel chapter uh, 12, Daniel chapter 12, uh, there, there is a, a window of, uh, help me, I'll tell my 45, yeah, 45 days, says that, um, you know, yeah, after the abomination, there's X amount of days. And then it says, blessed is the one who makes it to this number of days. And I just can't quote you the days precise the top of my head, and I stepped away from my Bible. But there's a difference there of those days. And people said, well, what is that? Well, some have said, well, the church is going to stay up until this point. They survived it. Then for that next period, it's going to be God pouring out his wrath. And then there. So there's variety. Again, there's variety in the position. This is the pre the pre-wrath position, I have intentionally not given it as much weight, and I told, told Colin this, I said, don't think it's because I don't think it's valid. It's just because most of us are more familiar with the polls, and so that's where I've chosen to weight the time of my study and what I present to you. So this is the pre-wrath position. Understand there's some variety in it, um, and it's got some things that are very intriguing uh, and, and positives that, that help move around because that is one of the challenges of the post-tribulation aspect is if if the tribulation is a time where God is pouring out wrath upon the world we aren't supposed to experience the wrath of God so how do you navigate that and obviously all these views people will give an answer so um, post-tribulation is this argues that the church endures the great tribulation but is not the object of God's wrath poured out on the wicked they see only one return of Christ in Scripture in opposition to the two that are put out by either pre-tribulationism or mid-tribulation or pre-wrath. Therefore, Christ simply comes at the end of the tribulation to receive the church to himself and then immediately returns to the earth to establish the kingdom age. 
those who hold to this view would take the, the aspect of God's wrath and say, well, there is a fundamental difference between the wrath of God that is poured out during tribulation and the wrath of God that is poured out in the lake of fire. That there is a qualitative difference between those two things. That there's examples in the Old Testament of where God will pour out his wrath on a people but also preserve a remnant. And so that would be the, the response to there. By and large, the, the post-tribulation position simply would take a passage. So I'll, I'll, post-tribulation do this. some point, the Antichrist rises up. A treaty is made. Seven years of tribulation go in. And in this time, again, there will be a variety of, of opinions about are the, trumpet, are the seals, trumpets, and, and um, bowls, are they all chronologically con, uh, consecutive? Is there some overlap? Is there some, there would all be, all be a variety of opinion in that. The point is that it's not until the end that when Jesus comes, and so it would do this, when it talks about in Matthew 24 that, that there will be the archangel's trumpet and God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. When, it, when you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, that with a shout and the trumpet, Jesus descends, the dead in Christ are, are raised, the living and those who are alive, who remain, will be caught up in the air to meet. Um, and then the trumpet that sounds in 1 Corinthians 15, where, where it talks about our resurrection bodies, that in the twinkling of eye we will be transformed. All of that is referring to the same event, which would be Revelation 19, the heavens open and Jesus descends. All of that is going to be tied together in one simple uh, event. Uh, here would be some of the arguments for. Um, the New Testament nowhere clearly states that the church will be taken out prior to the tribulation. What I mean by that is, if you come from a certain perspective, you will find what you're looking for, but there's no just one verse. And hear me say this, I'm not saying that it means there's not a pre-tribulation rapture. Just in fairness to the study, there's no one verse that says Jesus comes here for the current church and comes back here, and there's, there's no verse that describes it that way. It's, you've got to read it a certain way to go there. For instance, um, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that there will be a shout. There will be the, the, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. That's not language to use for someone who's coming in secret. That's language for someone who's coming loud and visibly. Um, in addition, in the passage, the term when it says in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. The Greek term we translate to meet, it's an interesting term. Um, and, the, and it's used two other places, and one is in the parable of um, the parable of the handmaids waiting for the bride, and, and you know half of them have their lamps ready to go, half doesn't. They hear the bridegroom's coming, they go out to meet him. The other half run to try to get some oil. When they come back, the bridegroom and the attendants have already entered into the wedding feast, and they're left out. And the parables to call us to be ready. In Acts, uh, there's another use of the term where it says that the, the believers in, in the city, they heard Paul was coming and they came out to meet Paul and then they came back in. So here's the challenge. Those who would say, well, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's a secret return of Jesus. He pulls the church out and then he goes back. So it's kind of like Jesus coming, 
you turn back up. The challenge of that is, is the, the, the word to meet literally was used when a royal was coming or a dignitary was coming to the city. It was the term used to describe the welcome party who ran out to meet them and escort them back into the city for proper honor and recognition, which would imply we meet Jesus in the air to finish returning with him in a bodily glorified state as the ones riding with him into battle. Uh, Second Thessalonians, the whole, well, what about the restrainer? And if the church stays, well, then that would mean the it who's restraining and the he who's restraining is not the church and the Holy Spirit. That is what it would mean. And I'll tell you, if you really do a deep dive there and you study God-fearing uh, men and women who devoted their lives to study Scripture, you will discover there are a vast amount of opinions about what that could be. It is not one-sided at all clear-cut. Not only that, logically, you've got to have the challenge of how does the Holy Spirit remove himself? The Holy Spirit's the one actually keeping life on the earth, breathing life into things. How does the Holy Spirit remove himself? What does that look like? It's not saying it's the, ooh, there's the seat. But how does that work? Not only that, but when you read the passage in the Greek, 1 in verse 6, you know what restrains him now. In the Greek, there's no object of that verb uh, to restrain. Uh, all of our Bibles put a him in there because they're making a translation decision to help clarify. But in the Greek, there's actually not an object. In fact, when you go further in the Greek, the language is constructed in such a way that if you are being very linguistically, um, I hate to use the word honest because I don't want to make it sound like people are going to take a view and that doesn't mean they're being dishonest. If you're being very literal with the, the language, at best, it's ambiguous between two opposite ways. So one is to read it with the language of restraint, which implies a force for good restraining a force for evil. You can make just as compelling and valid grammatically a case for the other way, which is that it is a force for evil that presently holds sway and will continue to hold sway building up to the revealing of the, the man of lawlessness. Both grammatically are valid in, in, um, with integrity options, which makes chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians very challenging to try to navigate with absolute certainty, and especially when, let's back up for a second, what is the purpose of 2 Thessalonians 2? If we're studying this, we have to ask that question. What is the context purpose? It's not the Thessalonians saying, hey, Paul, would you just remind us the whole chronology of the end times? It's them going, hey, Paul, someone told us Jesus already came and we missed him. And Paul's writing to assure them Jesus hasn't come yet because some things have to take place before Jesus comes, which raises an interesting criticism of post-trib. Well, if it's post-trib, then Jesus can't come at any moment because stuff has to happen before he comes. Well, yeah, and Paul just said, Jesus isn't coming back already because stuff has to happen before he comes back. Just because stuff has to happen before someone comes back doesn't mean that you and I know exactly when that person's coming back. Now, you may go, well, that's unconvincing. That's great. Remember, my job's not to try to convince you tonight. I just want you to know what the basic, the basic positions are out there. If you look earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says this in verse 5. This, talking about their suffering, this 
this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to relieve you, to give relief to you, to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And there will be different opinions. Is that referring to rest to us at the rapture? Is that referring rest at bodily resurrection? Well, if it's at bodily resurrection, Jesus being revealed with his angels of flaming fire, that would mean bodily resurrection would be after at, at the second coming, not at the rapture. So these are, the base, these, these are at least the most basic ways I can put the arguments. I tend to, I, my coming at this is not from stuff I heard. In fact, the honest truth is most of my generation, we've avoided in-depth in-time study like the plague because we, we don't, we don't want to get caught up in all the craziness that, ha- that we, we theorize happened beforehand. Doesn't mean we're right. My aim is just to go, I, what I like to try to do is to just go passage by passage and go, if I'm going to interpret this passage with honest, good Greek or Hebrew hermeneutical skills, where does this leave me? Which is really probably true. I, I, don't, I don't try to classify myself in a lot of stuff. I just want to go passage by passage and do the best job I can with each. When I go passage by passage, I have the fewest amount of questions for me just seeing one return of Jesus after the tribulation. It's not me saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's how I've approached it. That's how I've navigated it. Uh, there are others who would, dif- who would d- differ. Um, I'm not hard, hard there. I have also heard people, um, I, I, my pastor who I grew up under, um, based on everything I know, is uh, very much pre-trib. And he said something one time. He never expanded on it. And I've never thought to ask him about it. So next time I go up to seminary, I'm going to have to ask him. But he made this statement. He said, I don't know why when we think of a rapture, everybody's automatic assumption is it's just an instant vanishing of believers. Well, now you might go, well, wait a minute. Jesus talked about there'd be two people in the field and one of them would be taken away. Well, if you actually read the passage, the context is the one who's taken away is taken away for judgment. You want to be the one who stays in, in that passage. So it can't be that. And he just simply made a comment that I've never heard anyone run with which is, I'm not so sure why the rapture couldn't just be a gradual dying off of Christians. Is essentially what he left to that. And then there was a bunch of other stuff that happened, and I had college ministry right after to, to lead, and so I never, I never went back and asked them. Here's the point. There are God-fearing men and women who are far smarter than me, who you can read, who you can go far deeper down a rabbit hole, and all of us may come out having, I told you on staff, there's at least three of the four major tribulation positions. I actually think there's all four represented in the office staff. And you know what? Someone's going to be more right than another when it all happens. The closer we get to it, it's going to become more clear. And what is undeniable is that at some point, regardless of where the rapture falls, there does come the moment when at the world's worst, a trumpet will sound, the heavens will part, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will ride down on a white horse like the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is, and he will set it all right. And that is what we bank our hope on. We bank our hope on the second coming of Christ in the new Jerusalem 
not on some of the other questions we have about what the timeline of all the end times is going to be. And we've got to remain lockstep there. Um, and so this is, this is uh, again, these are the various basic, basic ways uh, that, you can, that you can see and roll at it. There are far more arguments than what I've given. Uh, Wes and I earlier were talking about uh, um, uh, his position, and I haven't covered anything of his position. And I'm telling you, there are so many different ways that people have come, and so uh, time does not permit for all that in one single night, but I, I want you to at least be educated because there is so much stuff even today, I just typed in one search, and here's what's crass. I searched for one thing just to get some further, like, give me some more about the argumentation here of how they present there. And all of the first internet hits are all people attacking why it's wrong. That's the, it's just stuff all over the place. Um, we've, got, we've got so much speculation on what is the mark of the beast going to be? Well, if, if the rapture's, if, you're, if you believe the rapture's before the tribulation, don't waste your time worrying about it. You're not going to be here for it. And regardless of where the rapture falls, go read what Scripture says. Scripture is undeniable that to receive the mark of the beast is to knowingly worship your life at the feet of the Antichrist and no one whose name's been written in the book of life, a.k.a. no one saved by grace through faith will receive the mark. And that is where, as I read those summaries, it's where you've got to be careful. I'm not anti the left behind books, but please, anytime anything like, whether it be left behind or this present darkness, Frank Peretti recognize even if it's a Christian book, if it's fiction, it's fiction. Because in Left Behind, one of the plot lines when the mark comes out is they take a young man who's a believer and they hold him down against his will and they bind him with the mark of the beast. But it's okay because he's really a believer. God still accepts him and now he's their mole inside Nikolai Carpathia's Antichrist government. That's a great plot device for a fictitious book. That is explicitly against the statement in Revelation multiple times that if your name's been written in the book of life, you will not have the mark of the beast. You won't do it. And no one's going to pin you down. They're just going to lop your head off according to the language in Revelation. So, Again, hear me, I'm not anti-revelation, I'm not anti-Tim, hey, it's not my rant, just I want to make sure we as believers, there is so much flooding towards us that can shape you, that can mold you, that can encourage you, that can terrify you, that can mislead you, I just want us to be aware, because here is the reality, we are living in what will be the most contentious election year in, in our nation's history. There are a lot of global question marks right now. We could end this year having Christmas like we all know and love it, or we could, we could watch cities wiped off the map with nuclear warfare. You might have money in your bank account to buy Christmas gifts at the end of the year, or some kind of AI threat from another country could clean out all our bank accounts. We are living in very unprecedented and uncertain times. And we are called to live as a people of confident, convicted hope. Doesn't mean we walk around with a fake smile on our face. But it also means we can't walk around acting like we've lost. And all hope is lost. Because that's not the case. 
So we've got to make sure we've got minds that are loyal. What does Scripture say? And let me just cling to it. And I know what Scripture does say emphatically. God knows what's going on right now. He knows where we're at in terms of preparation for His return. I know that God is sovereign over the movements of people on this globe, even, even when there's both um, good, righteous, and wicked, unrighteous forces from our vantage point opening or closing doors. I know that God's ultimately sovereign and He moves peoples so that they'd hear about Him because His heart is to see the nation saved, which is why He hadn't come back yet. And our life, we're gonna look at the, I'm so excited for Sunday. I hope you will be here. I, well, the passage Sunday was supposed to be part of last week's sermon, and I cut it out because of, of realizing what, um, the further I studied it, just what it, where it would take us. Realize, if you are in this room as a child of God, saved by grace through faith, our life is part of a grand eternal story. It is not part of a story of the American dream. It is not part of a story of a teenage romance. It is not part of a story of, of, of retirement. It is, not, it is part of a grand eternal story of God that should drive the what I live now in the hope of his coming. That's what his word is secure about. And we've got to make sure we're rock solid and not taken to or fro by every wind of doctrine. And that also means every crazy wild theory that could come up about the end times. This is why Paul told Timothy time and time again, don't hang out with people who are just going to speculate endlessly. Instead, submit yourself to the scriptures. Commit yourself to the public reading of the scriptures. Study the scriptures. And when we do that, we discover there's some things God is remarkably clear about, and there's some things that, if we're honest, there's a little bit of question marks about. And that's okay. And it's okay for us to take opinions, and it's okay for us to be unwavering on what is clear, and for us to be gracious with what is maybe not as clear, because perhaps our hope is not to lie and when the rapture happens or what the millennium kingdom will be like, our hope is to lie in the fact that Jesus comes back and new Jerusalem's coming. That's our hope. So let me pray. Uh, appreciate you being here tomorrow night. Just a reminder, we will gather and we will pray uh, for the University of Texas. It is the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. Uh, last year, set in stone way before it happened, but last year, um, as the, the events at Asbury uh, University were going on, Asbury was where it had already been selected, the national site to be this year, interestingly enough, the national site for the Collegiate Day of Prayer is just right up the road in Waco at Baylor University. Um, we will, we will and, and everybody who gathers does it differently. Some will join the, the national simulcast. Some will do what we will do, which is have our own more focused structure uh, of prayer time for UT. But understand, we will come together tomorrow night as quite literally thousands of believers of all ages will be gathering all over the country to pray for God's awakening in the hearts of our college students on college campuses. We were asked by the association a little over a year ago to be the primary driver of prayer for the University of Texas. Cody Schaus with the BSM will be back. There will be a student-led rally happening down at campus uh, that the BSM is doing. Cody will be with us, uh, and he invited, I don't know who is all on his personal prayer list, but when he sent out his email earlier this week, he invited all of them to come here and pray with us. And uh, so encourage you if you can be here tomorrow night seven o'clock i know men you've got bible study please be free to go to bible study 
If you feel like you want to come in and pray, come in and pray. That's your call. They're not competing events by any means. But we're going to be here at 7 o'clock to pray. Um, and uh, we will pray until we're finished praying. And it'll be a good time. And um, that said, let me pray and we will, we will wrap up for tonight. Father, thank you for tonight. May we ever live in the hope, um, in the hope of your return. We rejoice because of the certainty of redemption. Lord, we can look back. We see the cross. We see the resurrection. Lord, we can look in the present, Jesus, where you were high above, seated at the right hand of God, and we look forward. God, we look forward and we rejoice. That home is not found in this nostalgia of the past. It's not found even in if we enjoy the present. It, our home is coming. And once we get into our home, we'll never leave. So, Lord, may we be a people of hope, a people of conviction, a people of unwavering certainty and grace, gentleness, love, truth, peace, kindness, goodness, self-control, who live not by a spirit of fear but of power, love, and sound mind who give this world an answer for the hope that we have in you. Wow, Lord, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the blessing they are. Thank you for the encouragement that we are able to be with each other. Father, would you just continue, Holy Spirit, to produce and to unify us, to unify us, Jesus, around you, around the right worship of you, around living a yielded and surrendered and selfless life, abandoned all for your glory as individuals, and as a body corporately. Jesus, thank you for letting us be a church for such a time as this. It's in your name we pray, and to you we look. Amen.